Around the world, many countries are heavily reliant on wheat imports and prices have long been high, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine has triggered another price shock. The UN's Food and Agriculture Organization found that cereal prices were up 17% from February to March and food prices grew by over 12%. That's a giant leap to a new highest level since the FAO started indexing these prices in 1990. So is the war eating away at the world? What do these price rises mean? And does it have a potential to be the most damaging long-term global impact of a war in Ukraine? Welcome to Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast, looking at the far-reaching impacts of a war. I'm Ned Sedgwick. Ukraine's agriculture has long been a driving force in history, and for it, the country has earned the title Breadbasket of Europe. It's also crucial to Ukrainian national identity. Its yellow and blue flag represents the flat wheat fields below a wide sky. Russia's war on Ukraine has created fears of a global food crisis. The two countries supply a third of the world's wheat and are major exporters of barley, corn and sunflower oil. Fighting has disrupted exports and that's led to record prices on international markets. So first up, let's talk to Joe Glauber of IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, to get a better idea of Ukraine and Russia's role in supplying wheat and other grains to the world. He says that the crisis right now is less about access to grain stocks, but more about the price we'll pay for them. Wheat is a globally traded commodity, so when we have disruptions like droughts around the world or even a a large disruption like what we're seeing in Ukraine, Buyers are able to get wheat. They just end up paying a lot more. I mean, obviously, where they're sourcing wheat right now, uh, if you're in North Africa, a lot of it comes out of the Black Sea because of the close proximity. That wasn't the case 20 years ago. 20 years ago, they may have been sourcing wheat from the U.S. or from the EU or from Australia. You know, now it's a lot of that's coming out from Ukraine or, or Russia. So... So why does it matter if the supply chain is disrupted in Ukraine and Russia if there are other places that grow wheat? Do they not have reserves? Are there not other markets that are willing to jump into the shortfall? Well, there are other suppliers that will jump in. It's just will come at a cost. And part of that is because prior to the crisis, we were at very tight global stocks for wheat, maize, soya. All these things were at at very low levels, primarily because last year we had weather problems in North America, so the wheat crop was affected. Parts of Europe had poor wheat harvest last year. In the soybean market, Brazil had a very bad drought this year. Brazil, largest soybean exporter in the world, all of a sudden had a lot less to send to the world. And at the same time, we've had very strong demand in places like China. So all these factors have meant that stocks have been drawn down and prices were up highest levels in some 10 to 15 years. And that was all before Russia invaded Ukraine. What are the other major exports that we might see the prices go up on on the shelves? What are the things that we might not realize that Ukraine and Russia have such an impact on? First and foremost, we've talked about wheat and wheat you know, is so important in the North African and Middle East markets in particular because they consume so much wheat. I mean, a country like Egypt, 35% of the calories coming from bread. Much of that wheat is, is imported. Much of that, those imports come from the Black Sea. So that's the sort of stress you're seeing in the wheat market. And that's 
resulting in really high prices. But that's not all. I mean, Ukraine is a major producer of maize, and they uh, sell that maize to China as a big market. Also, Europe is a very big market. It's also important because it's non-GMO for countries in Europe that want non-GMOs of corn for their livestock feed. The EU has just recently said that it would consider relaxing rules on import of corn from South America, so Argentina and, and Brazil. But this is going around all over the world as people are trying to source grain that from new suppliers or different suppliers than what they were getting before. So how do we get out of this situation? I mean, even if a war ended tomorrow, it sounds like farming is such a complex situation that you can't just click your fingers. But is there a quick fix? Is there anything like a short-term solution? Unfortunately, what's a lot of the damage that has been done is going to take a long time to fix. Uh, one is that we still have crops within Ukraine that were harvested last year that have not yet moved to port. They're sitting in silos. There's been anecdotal reports of some of those storage facilities being destroyed. We certainly have had reports of port facilities being damaged. All that would have to be rebuilt. But we have also the major problems right now of very little fertilizer coming into Ukraine. What diesel fuel there is, it's mainly used for military purposes. So having adequate diesel for farmers to get out in the fields in tractors or harvesting combines is going to be an issue. And then you still kind of get that out through the ports. And I, there is less, a lot less grain coming onto the market. And if you look around the world, where are you going to see the additional wheat come from? 60% of the world's wheat that's exported are produced in countries that plant that wheat in the fall. And so there's not a lot you can do to respond to high prices. That wheat's already planted. What you can hope is that you get a good crop. Right now, about one third of the U.S. wheat crop is rated poor or very poor condition. So the, the next wave is going to be spring planted wheat. In the U.S., we had a, a survey of our farmers last week. They show their planting intentions. They're not going to plant any more wheat that was planted last year in the spring. They're seeing record prices of corn. They're seeing record prices of soybeans. And they're seeing also high input costs. So a crop like soybeans may look more attractive for no other reason than it doesn't require nearly as much fertilizer as a crop like wheat or a crop like corn. So I don't think we're really going to see additional supplies, a real production response come until the Southern Hemisphere, which will be planting their crops soon. So one of the reasons why I think that we're going to see high prices continue at least through 2023, just because of the tight situation we're in and the fact that I think it's even if the war ended tomorrow, that it's going to take a while for this to get back to normal. So farming is such a long-term game that a quick fix is definitely not on the horizon here. And that means we're going to see food prices go up and stay up around the world for a while. So what happens when prices of staple foods increase? Professor Tim Benton leads the Environment and Society programme here at Chatham House. He tells me about a time in recent history that could help us understand just that. The nearest analogue that we have to what might happen this year is that in 2010 and 11, in the same area, so Ukraine and Western Russia, there was a very big extreme heat event, which led to a drop off in about 30% of yields within the areas of Ukraine and parts of Russia. And that led to a doubling of food prices on the commodity crop markets. And of course, that led to 
very rapid food inflation in every part of the world, particularly in those areas of the world which are uniquely served by the exports from Russia and Ukraine. Were there any obvious geopolitical consequences of this food rise in 2010-2011? Can you trace big events back to it? So what tends to happen when there is a shortfall on international markets is that countries start worrying that they won't be able to import food to meet their local needs. So some countries say, we're so worried about our food security that we'll put in place export bans. That further emphasises on the global market that there will be a grain shortfall. So that amplifies food prices. The public and private sector around the world all kind of panic a bit more. And that means that prices go up very rapidly. And because prices go up very rapidly, in rich countries, food insecurity tends to increase. And in the UK, we had a very rapid increase in the reliance on food banks. And in the poor world, when food prices go up, that tends to create social unrest in various forms in countries where people already feel disaffected, marginalised and suffering from poor governance. That can lead to food riots. And the famous example of 2010-11 is that the rapid increase in food prices uh, sparked the Arab Spring, not caused by the 2010-11 food price spike, but sparked The underlying reasons for the uprising were there, but it's the spark that matters. And of course, the geopolitical reconfiguration of the Middle East then led to uh, increasing influx of migrants into Europe. Migrants into Europe in turn contributed to the rise of nationalism and the popularism that we see. That in turn put extra pressures on European integration and might have contributed, for example, to, to the rise of nationalism that, that underpinned the Brexit vote in the UK. That's qu- quite an overwhelming thought, that the butterfly effect of 2010-2011 basically led to potentially everything bad that's happened in the last 10 years, you know, depending on your perspective. What about consequences from this specific war and crisis? How do you see them developing and evolving? We've clearly got the immediacy of the cost of living squeeze that people are feeling in rich world and poor world. So energy prices, food prices, other prices going up because of supply chain disruptions. But we've got the additional thing that effectively Russia has been forced or is being disengaged from the global international community. The whole multilateral architecture of cooperation between countries is therefore being split into, broadly speaking, a pro-Europe and America, pro-Russia, perhaps with China, uh, block. If the war continues to escalate, we might then see uh, the emergence of a much more bipolar world with a Eastern bloc and a Western bloc, and countries might be forced to choose to join one. So as we look ahead, the consequences of this crisis might not just be this food price spike, energy price spike, cost of living thing, but might be a real long-term, deep-seated structural change in the way that our global markets work and who trades with who and what prices are therefore available over the next decade or two decades. So it's not just a short-term blip. This is a long-term structural change that might well drive things in quite odd directions from today's viewpoint. You talk about 
these almost cascading crises, is there anything that we can do to actually help? Like maybe change our buying habits or consumption patterns? We are, from a political perspective, in a moment of choice. When it comes to the demand side, we can do a lot by thinking about how we change our eating habits as individuals or as societies. So one of my colleagues in France calculated that if we ate 15% less chicken and pig, which are largely fed grain that could be eaten by humans, then that would make up for the shortfall of European imports of grain from Ukraine. And we wouldn't then have to plough up nature-protected areas to make up that shortfall and continue to eat chicken and pig. And if we demanded less grain from Europe, there would be more grain on the global market to go to places like Egypt or Yemen or Bangladesh or other places that are going to struggle to buy enough grain to feed themselves anything, whereas we've got the luxury of changing the composition of our diets. So we've been speaking a lot about wheat and staple products, but what are some of the price rises that we might see in unexpected items that we wouldn't immediately think are going to be impacted by this? I would answer this in in two parts. One is that this crisis is coming on the back of COVID, and COVID led to supply chain disruptions that were severe, and we hadn't recovered from that. We've got semiconductor issues that is partly driven by increasingly perhaps minerals coming out of Russia, but we already had those supply chain issues to do with semiconductors. So the price of cars, you can't get cars, take much longer to manufacture and so on. When you come to the kind of specifics of food, everywhere in the world requires fertilizer. Fertilizer was rising in prices anyway, but has risen even more because Ukraine and Russia and Belarus are important parts of the fertilizer supply. So even if you're growing tomatoes in Southern Europe, or you're growing sugar in Brazil, the inability to get fertilizer will change those those prices. And as we go through the crisis, all of those things will add to this uh, increasing interconnectedness of the whole world. And we will feel it in everything that we want to purchase because it will get more expensive and so on. So, you know, the thing to emphasize is really that this is not a food crisis. It is not an energy crisis. It's not even a cost of living crisis. This is a crisis about everything to do, broadly speaking, with consumer economies, where what we buy comes through markets. Whether you're a poor person in the global south or a rich person in the global north, you will see the impacts of this. Both Joe and Tim mentioned Egypt in our conversations and how reliant the country is on imports of wheat from Ukraine. 35% of calories there come from bread. Egypt is the world's largest importer of wheat. It also buys 85% from Russia and Ukraine. Flatbread is the staple for all Egyptian households and the price has risen by 25% since the war broke out on the 24th of February. Egypt is also the biggest country that was impacted by the Arab Spring. So let's see what the situation is like on the ground there at the moment. Mohammed Al-Karamani helps run the Egyptian food bank in Cairo. And he says that even before the war started in Ukraine, the situation in Egypt wasn't great. Just before the war erupted, actually, the 
food prices have been increasing for almost more than a year now. This is not just in Egypt, but it's global. And Egypt is one of the countries that was uh, severely affected by this because we are a net importer of the majority of our food staples. So food prices were already increasing before the war. People who are food insecure in Egypt is almost 30% of the population. And as you know, we were approaching Ramadan month and Ramadan month food consumption in Egypt is usually way higher than the average. So, uh, and then when the war erupted, actually everything completely uh, and dramatically changed to the worse, of course. You say that 30% of people in Egypt are food insecure, but what does that actually look like on the ground? Like in the West, we've got this extreme view of what hunger looks like, which basically means famine conditions or no food at all. Uh, but what does it look like on the ground in Egypt if you're one of those 30% of people who is food insecure? When we talk about food insecurity, it's not the same as being hungry or not the same as being in famine. It's the inability sometimes not to have access to food. So if you encounter one or two, three days in the week or in the month where you are not able to eat three meals, this is considered food insecurity. On the ground, almost uh, 4.5 million people in Egypt live in extreme poverty. And we consider those people to be living in severe food insecurity status, which means that those people regularly do not have access to sufficient or safe food. I mean, in Egypt, you, you don't see those, as you mentioned, those famine situations where people are starving to death. But you see that people have malnutrition diseases, for example, because they do not eat healthy meals or proper meals. You see children have suffering from anemia, from stunting, from wasting, from underweight, and a lot of other uh, malnutrition diseases because of their bad diets or not eating healthy or proper meals. Uh, this is what's happening, unfortunately, in Egypt. Okay, so it's more subtle than that. But are you already seeing the impact of war in Ukraine then? Oh, yeah, I can see I can see it personally speaking on a personal level. Uh, yeah, prices have been increasing uh, so fast in two or three weeks, I would say that in unusual household consumption and food purchases, you, you see almost like 20-25% increase in almost all food items. For wheat in particular, Egypt imports above 60% of its wheat consumption. 80% of these 60% is from Ukraine and Russia. And bread in Egypt is not just normal staple food. If you have been following the 2011 revolution in Egypt, its slogan was bread. The first word was bread. So bread has, has a great symbol in Egyptian politics and Egyptian society. The price of bread is very important for the people. And that's why in particular, when the war erupted and the food prices sharply increased, the first thing that the government tried to control was prices of bread. The other thing is the government, as a response, devaluated the Egyptian pound. So it, the Egyptian pound lost almost 15 to 20 percent of its uh, value against all foreign currencies. And once again, Egypt imports the majority of its food products, medicine, uh, machinery, equipment. Egypt is a net important of a lot of products. So with the rising price of, of the US dollar and foreign currency, this puts a lot of another layer of pressure on Egyptian households. We are expecting gasoline prices to increase, electricity prices to increase. Uh, all imported goods and products have already increased in the market. In your capacity working at a food bank, have you seen a change uh, in the influx of people seeking help or is that impact not quite being felt yet? So we have received the requests from uh, different non-government, non-profit organizations because we act more as a hub 
and working through a network of small non-governmental organizations spread throughout uh, all Egypt's governorate. So we have been receiving a lot of phone calls, a lot of requests that more people are asking for food assistance. Our struggle now is that we provide food assistance and food prices have already increased. So when you used to provide a a typical household with a certain amount of food products, now it's, it's becoming harder to provide them with the same amount. And on the other hand, we are expecting donations to be less in the coming couple of months because, as I mentioned, that we have a wave on inflation. So we are not expecting to receive the same amount of donations. So we are really having a very tough and difficult time in order to continue supporting the families and the households as they are used to be assisted by the Egyptian Food Bank. How do you see the situation developing? Egyptian people have shown a great deal of resilience over the past 40 years. Uh, the past five or six years, Egypt has, uh, has a very aggressive economic reform program. Subsidies have been removed from uh, the energy sector entirely. Prices of everything have increased. The government introduced a VAT tax, but the Egyptian people endured it, you know, you know which is very uh, something that you keep you thinking of how the people endured this. The Egyptian government is seeking other uh, import markets, especially for uh, wheat, uh, because the government knows that this has also a very high political cost. So they are very aware of uh, increasing food prices are going to be to cause a lot of political troubles. And that's why at some point, I believe the government should and will actually intervene to in, in order to contain the, this situation. Though Mohammed's optimism is great here, I can't help but be worried about the other conversations with the potential for other crises caused by climate emergencies or other destabilizing wars, it seems like at the very least, we will have to prepare ourselves for a rough couple of years. Some countries might come out as winners here, though. India had a good wheat harvest this year, and Egypt just announced it will import about 1 million tonnes of Indian wheat. Even if a war is to end soon, Ukraine itself will need food to feed a country taken to the brink. Its capacity to take on a central place in our food networks will take a long time to recover. And as Tim made it clear, everyone will be impacted by this, whether you import wheat or other products from Ukraine and Russia or not. The sanctions are also disrupting supplies of fertilizer produced by Russia, which impacts crop growing everywhere, even in self-reliant countries. So it's not just the actual war which is impacting food prices across the world. It's also the sanctions. So what's the point of these sanctions? Are Western governments hoping for regime change? Is it just a punishment? Or is it a genuine hope that it will lead to the end of a war? These are the questions we'll be looking at next week. So make sure to subscribe or follow the podcast so you don't miss it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Joe Glauber, Tim Benton and Mohamed Al-Karamani for talking to us. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and what aspects you would like us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producer is Anouk Mie from Earshot Strategies with help from David Dargahi. And thanks also to Alistair Burnett at Chatham House.